Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This morning we're going to be focusing upon verses 10 through 17. First Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17, please give your attention to God's holy, powerful, inerrant word. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. I did baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Last summer, James Franklin, the head coach of the Penn State football team, made a decision to remove the names from the back of the players' jerseys. Of course, this wasn't something new or novel. Matter of fact, for 125 years, up until 2012, Penn State jerseys never had the players' names on the back. Joe Paterno used to say, it's the name on the front of the jersey that really matters most, not the one on the back. But we understand when Bill O'Brien became the coach, he decided to break tradition and add the players' names on the back of the jerseys in order to honor those players that particularly stayed committed to the program through the scandal and the sanctions that followed. And while we, and I think most of us, and also Coach Franklin, appreciated the intent behind Coach O'Brien's move, Coach Franklin last summer said it's time to return to the tradition, and I just want to read you one quote from that press conference. He said, we are a strong family, playing for one goal, one university, and there's only one name that truly matters, Penn State. That's such a refreshing mindset in an era of modern football where the players will after even mediocre catches or tackles, strut away with ridiculous dances and gestures, drawing attention to themselves and their accomplishments. As a matter of fact, one of the most common celebratory gestures you'll see these days is after a player makes a good catch or a good tackle, he'll jump up from the pile and prance away and then point to the name on the back of his jersey exactly opposite of the ideal that Joe Paterno taught his players. Matter of fact, Joe expected his players, if they scored a touchdown, to respectfully hand the ball to the referee and humbly walk to the sideline. 
We live in a culture that is steeped in individualism and self-glorification in so many ways. And it's affected the church. One of the ways in which it's affected the church is that we take the unity of the church far too lightly. And we give little attention to maintaining the unity of the church and protecting the unity of the church. Our Lord once said to his followers, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. A little bit earlier in the service, we heard from Ephesians chapter 4, how Paul called upon the church to eagerly strive to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Unity of the church was very, very important to Paul, and he stressed it often. And it's interesting that even though the church in Corinth had many different kinds of problems, and we've been talking about in introducing this, our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, we've been talking about a lot of the different problems that this church had. It had more problems than any of the other churches that Paul addressed in his letters in the New Testament. But it's interesting that Paul chooses to, the, to address first the divisions in the church at Corinth that he made that the top priority. The first thing that he wanted to address was divisions in the church of Corinth. There was no hope, he knew, of ever fixing the other problems in the church so long as the church remained divided among itself. I know this from many years of being involved in church leadership. I've seen it over and over again, to one degree in my own churches, but even in some greater and, and more ugly ways in other churches. I have seen how the best way to immobilize and disable a congregation is to get them fighting with one another. In verse 11, Paul says, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Paul had received several reports, primarily from Chloe's people, whoever that was, that there was quarreling going on in the church in Corinth. We don't know who Chloe was. We don't have any more information about her in Scripture. All we know about Chloe is that she snitched. Her people tattletale. We spend many, many hours teaching our children not to tattletale, but where would we be without parents if they never tattletaled? And I'm just kind of making a side point here that it's not always wrong to give a bad report about a brother or sister in Christ. It's not always wrong. Usually it is because of the attitude behind the sharing. But gossip isn't simply sharing a bad report about another brother or sister in Christ. That's not necessarily gossip. What makes it gossip is the intention behind why you are sharing that bad report. Are you sharing that negative information about a third party? Are you sharing it in order to tear them down, to make them look worse, or to make yourself look better, or to get yourself included in some inside circle? Or are you sharing that bad report because you love that brother and sister and you know that by sharing it with this person, you're going to be able to help them? We as elders in the church 
sometimes need to hear bad reports about people in the congregation so that we can help them. It's better to go to that person first. That's what Jesus always taught us. But if there is no repentance, then sometimes you've got to go and give a bad report. In love. That's the loving thing to do, is to not allow somebody to continue in their sin, but to confront them lovingly and call them to repentance. And that's what Chloe's people were doing. They were sharing this report that there was quarreling going on in the church in Corinth, and Paul doesn't rebuke them for making the report. He goes and confronts the sin. In Ephesians 4, Paul tells us that we are to use our words to build up others and to give grace to others. And sometimes that means giving a bad report. Quarreling is the word that Paul uses for it. And we don't necessarily think of quarreling as a sinful activity, but in Scripture, when Paul uses that word in the Greek, it's always a sin. Matter of fact, he lists quarreling, that word, he uses that word, he puts it in the list of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, which are opposed to the fruit of the Spirit. It's an evidence of our sinful nature that we quarrel with one another. And a quarrel, scripturally speaking, is not just a disagreement. You can disagree and not quarrel. Quarreling is not debating. You can debate something and not quarrel. To quarrel is to be divisive. To quarrel is to promote yourself against somebody else. It's to, to promote, promote rivalry within the body of Christ. In, in verse 12, Paul refers to the quarrels that he heard about in the church in Corinth in this way. He talks about followings. He says, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which of course is another name for Peter, or I follow Christ. This is nothing new. The church has regularly throughout its history divided over its leaders. As a matter of fact, the church today is plagued by personality cults in local churches or in the national scene or in the international Christian scene. There are a lot of celebrities that sometimes bring more division than unity. Paul mentions four groups here. And we don't know anything more about the groups than what he tells us here, and he doesn't elaborate. So we don't know what teachings of these leaders or practices or, or personality traits or leadership styles. We don't know what it was about these men that were dividing the church in Corinth. And I think that's intentional. I think the Holy Spirit guided Paul to put it in this vague, these vague terms so that we could apply it to a lot of these kinds of divisions in the church. But in that particular case, let me speculate a little and recognize that what I say in trying to discern what those divisions might have been over, I'm speculating. But let, here's, here's some thoughts on it. First of all, there were the Paulist group, the people who said, I follow Paul. And that's easy to imagine why, because Paul had been the church planter. He had established that church. He had been a spiritual father, I'm sure, to many of those people. And so people favored Paul over the other leaders. Matter of fact, Paul was, in his calling, an apostle to the Gentiles. And so it's easy to imagine why so many of the Gentiles in that church might have favored Paul because Paul had a passion for bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. But it's also easy to see why maybe Paul didn't have the following that he could have had because in chapter 2, Paul says that when he came, he said he didn't come with preaching that was with lofty speech or wisdom, but in weakness and much trembling. He implies that he was not a powerful, impressive speaker. And so 
Maybe there were people who didn't favor Paul because of that. Well, that second group that he mentions are what I would call the Apollosarians, those who say, I follow Apollos. And from the book of Acts, we know that Apollos was a leader in the church who followed Paul. Paul planted a church, stayed there about three years, and then left, and then Apollos came in and became the primary preacher and teacher in Corinth. And we've seen this in many churches where the guy who comes along afterward, either he measures up or he doesn't measure up. He's better or he's worse. And this seems to be what was going on in Corinth. And it's also easy to see because we know that from the book of Acts that Apollos was from Alexandria in Egypt. And if you know anything about the history of Egypt and Alexandria, it was in in the civilized world at that time was known as a place of high culture and high education. It was where a lot of uh, very respected educational institutions were. The people that were highly intelligent went there. It was the the Ivy League of the Roman Empire, so to speak. And so when Apollos came with that background, and actually in the book of Acts, it says that he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. So it's easy to see why Apollos would have gathered a a following in, in Corinth, especially among the very academic and philosophical Corinthians. The third group that Paul mentions is what I'm calling the Cephasarians, of course, Cephas being Peter, those who say, I follow Peter. We don't know if Peter ever visited Corinth. There's no biblical record that he did, but it's, there's a good chance that he did. But even if he didn't, I mean, it's Peter after all. He was the celebrity among the apostles. And so if you're ever going to claim a, an allegiance to an apostle, Peter would be a, a top name that you would want to be associated with. And it's also easy to believe that Peter, we know that in the book of Acts, that Peter's ministry focused more on the Jews while Paul was called to minister to the Gentiles. And so maybe the people from a Jewish background, the Jewish Christians, favored Peter. But that brings us to that fourth category, that fourth group, the ones that called themselves the Christians, I follow Christ. Wouldn't they all have said that? I mean, we're talking about people in the church. Wouldn't they have all said, I follow Christ? Yes, but I think this group, and and it really was a separate group, I think, this is my speculation, but I think in the context it makes sense, this is the group that looked at all these other immature Christians in their eyes that were dividing up over Paul and Peter and Apollos and said, we're above that. We're so much more spiritually mature than that. We see the big picture. We're spiritual. We really know what is what is what is what is within the the, the spiritual community we've got the insight we've got the inside track we're spiritually mature and you always have that when you have a spiritual division you have a segment in the division that says we're the truly spiritual ones we're the spiritually elite if only everybody would listen to us we could take care of all this divisiveness i think that's the group that paul's referring to you notice what paul is really saying here is there's no names on the back of our jersey We all have the name Christ on the front. It's the name of Christ that really matters. Paul would say over, we'll get into this in a few weeks, over in chapter 3. He says in verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. Paul, Apollos, Peter, they're nothing apart from the work of Christ in and through them. 
He's saying keep your focus on Christ. We, uh, in the history of the church, tend to be known by the names of our leaders, don't we? Calvinist, Lutheran, Wesleyan. And sometimes those are helpful labels to help define what theology we ascribe to, but I can't help but think that Wesley and Calvin and Luther would recoil at the idea that we would use their names to define ourselves, just as Paul did here. John the Baptist said, do you remember what he said? I am not the Christ. He must increase. I must decrease. That's the kind of leader you want to follow. He must increase. I must decrease. I must recede into the background. And your focus must more and more come upon Christ. And that brings us to what Paul really dictates here as the source of our unity. How do we make our unity stronger? Well, it starts in a mindset. Just like individualism and self-glorification starts in a worldly mindset, unity starts in a mindset that is about glorifying Christ. And so the first point, he points to three truths. The first point that he makes is that we have one Lord. There is only one Lord, and our unity is in him. Look at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word brothers and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ go together. Because there is the one Lord Jesus Christ, we are all brothers and sisters. That's what he's saying. He keeps addressing them here as brothers. That's because we're all part of a spiritual family. And that's not just trite language. It's made up of, according to verse 2, if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. As someone once said, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your relatives. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, it's a transition we need to make in life. From the time we're in middle school and high school and even through college, it's, our life is all about our friends. But once you get out of college, you begin to realize it's really family that matters. It's such a shame that we live in a culture of so many broken families because friends are great, but families have a bond and a commitment that you lean on and rely on throughout your life. And Paul does not lightly call us brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, the world hears us calling each other brother and sister, and it kind of creeps them out, doesn't it? What do you mean? Why do you call yourself brother and sister? That's weird. It is weird to the world. But we have a bond to one another that goes far deeper than genetics. It goes far deeper than who gave birth to you and geographically where you're located. We have a bond, Scripture tells us, in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And there is no deeper bond than that. We are brothers and sisters in a far greater way than you are brothers and sisters with your blood relatives unless they are also in Christ. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, We who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. God, as we've been studying in our 
adult Sunday school, God has made a bond in blood that he has sovereignly administered. He has formed a spiritual family through the blood of his own son shed on the cross. And if you're covered in the blood, washed in the blood, bought with the blood of Christ, you are bought, brought not only into a deep bond with the creator who made you and redeemed you, but you're bought, brought into a deep bond with fellow believers. And we take that bond far too lightly. There is one Lord. We serve, live, and worship under one Lord. And that is the source of our unity. That's the point that Paul's making over in Philippians. This is such a familiar passage about the person and work of Christ in Philippians 2. About how he's equal with God and gave up his exalted, glorified status in heaven to dwell in our midst and to die on the cross. But did you ever notice that that passage, as familiar as it is, starts in a exhortation about unity in the church? The two are intimately intertwined. Let me just begin read the beginning of that chapter, where Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he launches into that great gospel message. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Our unity is based in the crucifixion and resurrection and lordship of Jesus Christ. And it is a deep and profound unity. The closer we get to Christ, the more like Christ we are, the more unified we will be. That's why Paul says, was Paul crucified for you? Was Apollos crucified for you? Was Peter crucified for you? No, you have one crucified Lord. And we are united in him. We are to seek his glory and not our own. And that will produce unity. But unity in Christ requires that we have a specific definition of who Christ is and what he has done. Which brings me to the second point that Paul makes in this passage is that we have one truth. One truth. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, that all of you agree. He appeals to us that we agree. He goes on to say that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. What he's saying is that there is no true unity without unity in the truth. Literally, in the original language, the word agree there means to say the same thing. He's calling upon us to say the same thing. Say what thing? To say what we believe, to say it in common. It's a beautiful moment in the worship of God's people. That's why occasionally we'll have you stand up and recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And those are man-made statements, but they are summaries of the entirety of the teaching of the Word of God. We could make you stand up and say the Word of God together, but that'd take a while. What we do is have you stand up and say the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And you say, this is what I believe. 
And I agree with my brothers and sisters that this is true. It's a powerful, beautiful moment in the life of the church. We are to seek like-mindedness, Paul says. To the point where we begin to see God our creator and redeemer and, and God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in the same way. That we see the world in the same way, with a biblical worldview. That we see Christ in the same way and his work in the same way. That's how we achieve unity in the church. In chapter 2, verse 16, Paul will say, we have the mind of Christ. What an amazing statement. But as we, through the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the written word of God, we think like Christ, we begin to have the mind of Christ. And the more we have the mind of Christ, the more unified we will be. Paul said to the Galatians, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel different or contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. We must agree about the definition of who Jesus is and what he has done to save us. What Paul is saying is, yes, we must be eager and passionate to pursue unity in the church, but we must have equal eagerness and passion to seek truth and agreement among ourselves. And sometimes it seems like those two great goals are contradictory to one another, and that's why things get hard. We are still sinners, and we still see through the glass darkly, and so there is no way that we are going to agree in every point about what this word of God says and how to interpret it correctly. We are going to disagree, but we must never stop striving to agree. We are not to settle. We're not to treat agreement as though it's not important. And yes, that means we have to discern the difference between essentials of the faith, things that are non-negotiables, things that we're willing to divide over if we can't come to an agreement about it. And to be able to separate those essentials and non-negotiables from things that are secondary teachings that we can agree to disagree and still remain in close fellowship over. And that's not an easy decision. The leadership of the church through all of its history has struggled to make that distinction between what's essential and non-negotiable and what's secondary and something we can agree to disagree upon. But a true, healthy, vibrant church will work hard to draw a biblical line in those places. Back in the last century, in the 20th century, there was such a powerful movement towards unity in the church worldwide And you had organizations like the National Council of Churches and World Council of Churches that worked really hard to bring all these different tens of thousands of different denominations together so that we could speak with one voice. But you don't hear about the National Council of Churches or the World Council of Churches anymore, do you? Because that effort failed miserably. And the reason it failed is that they sacrificed truth in the pursuit of unity. And they essentially said it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're willing just to be unified. And that unity is so thin and illusionary when it's not based in truth. How do you know if a church is a false church or a true church? How do you know if a a church is a cult or a true Christian church? That's a very complicated answer to that question, but I usually say start with two questions. Ask the leadership of that church two questions. First of all, who is Jesus Christ? And secondly, what has he come to earth to, what did he come to earth to do 
the person and work of Christ are central to what God has revealed to be true. And you can tell the difference between a true church and a false church very quickly if they, how they answer those two questions. Does it line up with scripture or doesn't it? Those are essentials. Those are non-negotiables because that's the gospel. A wise person once said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. It's a very difficult motto to live out, but that's what we strive for. Last week I said we live here at Oakland, we live by major on the majors and minor on the minors. Well, that's a corollary. In essentials, in the essentials there's unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. And the hope, even though we struggle with this kind of unity and truth, the hope is is that the greater our agreement, then the greater is our fellowship, and the greater is our worship, and the greatest is our service together. The more we can agree on how to rightly understand the word of God, the closer we are going to be to one another, the more rich will be our worship, and the greater will our service be. Divisions in the church sometimes are necessary over the essentials and non-negotiables. But too often divisions happen because of personalities and preferences and strategies instead of principles. And those turned into the quarrels that sinfully divide the church. So we have one Lord and we have one truth. Paul concludes this passage by talking about our one purpose. We have one purpose. In in verses 13 through 16, he refers to the practice of baptism. And somehow we get the idea that the practice of baptism was tied to their division over leaders. And so I don't know what that connection was, but it's possible that they were actually boasting and, and causing rivalries among themselves by saying, well, I was baptized by Paul. And somebody else saying, no, well, you think that's great. I'm better than you because I was baptized by Peter. Whatever it was, Paul says, I'm glad. You know, baptism is really important. But it's secondary to the gospel. And Paul says in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul was called to be an evangelist. That meant that he moved from place to place, sowing the seed, watering the seed and then moving on and sowing the seed elsewhere, planting churches and then allowing others to come in and build on the foundation that he built first. And so it's easy to understand. His focus was on preaching the gospel and getting churches established. And it looks as though he delegated the responsibility of baptizing to his associates, people like Silas and Timothy. And then eventually, as they moved on to the next church, he would delegate it properly to the elders of the church to to administer the sign of inclusion in the covenant, the sign of baptism. But Paul wants to make it clear that if our arguments over baptism, whatever those may be, if those cause us to lose our focus on our purpose, which is to proclaim the gospel to the world, then we are in danger of division. The gospel is to be the center of the church's preaching, teaching, and way of life. And when it stops being the center of a church's preaching, teaching, and way of life, That's when the church becomes vulnerable to quarrels and division and immobility and irrelevance in the world. 
And let me just say this, because the gospel is our purpose, we have one Lord, one truth, and one purpose, which is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The implication of that is clear, that if you're being divisive, if you're being quarrelsome in the church, then you are committing an offense against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus made that clear because he said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he's talking to his father and he says this, I do not ask for these only, speaking of the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Do you hear what he's saying there? That our unity is a testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be and that we are his people, loved by him, saved by him, and being sanctified by him. Our unity is a testimony to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means that quarreling and divisiveness actually destroys the testimony of the church. And it shows the church to be nothing different than the sinful ways of the world. Paul says that unrepentant, unrepentant, divisive people must be disciplined. All sin needs to be disciplined if it's unrepentant. But Paul particularly points out the sin of divisiveness divisiveness in Titus chapter 3. Listen to what he says in verses 9 and 10. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Paul considers being divisive in the church, quarreling with your brothers and sisters in Christ to be a very serious offense against the gospel. And he points it out to say, make sure you discipline that because we know what will happen. It will destroy the church. It must be dealt with. The unity of the church is of highest value and a top priority. We maintain it and we protect it by a constant awareness of the fact that we have one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we proclaim one truth, the truth of the word of God, and we have one purpose, which is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we lose sight of who our Lord is, what our truth is, and what our purpose is, that's when we become divided and destroyed. To steal a line from James Franklin, at Oakwood we are a strong family, working for one goal, one church, and there's only one name that truly matters, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just close with a couple of words of advice. First of all, two keys, I would say, to eliminating the kind of quarreling that leads to divisiveness and division in the church. First of all, make a daily commitment to immerse yourself in the gospel. Really immerse yourself in the gospel. Make that a daily pursuit because as you meditate upon and dwell upon the gospel, you begin to do something. You begin to accept one another as Christ first has accepted you. That becomes your way of dealing with your brothers and sisters, and that's life-transforming. That builds up the unity of the church. Secondly, keep communicating. We talk about the biblical means of peacemaking. 
And Jesus taught us how to be at peace with one another when we quarrel, when we offend one another. And it's all about communication. When you're feeling divided, when you're quarreling with somebody in the church, you need to communicate in the gospel. You need to have the attitude of the gospel and come and talk to the person who's offended you. Talk to the person who's being divisive. If they resist you, if they won't listen to you, take a brother or sister. Make a, make a report to a brother or sister and bring them and communicate. Communicate, communicate, communicate until you realize communication is not working and church discipline has to come into the picture. But just communicate, talk, because when divisions and quarrelings really begin to take hold and take root in the church is when people stop talking. And they start talking to only people that agree with them in the quarrel. And that's deadly. And it's not what the gospel's about. We are here to preach the gospel, to live the gospel, and to be a testimony to the gospel being true because of our oneness, our supernatural oneness in Christ. Let's pray that it's always true. Let's pray. Father, we are people of the book. We are people of the gospel. We are the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that the reputation and testimony of this church is that that's a place where the gospel is lived out in the way that we relate to one another and the way that we love and worship you. Lord, I pray that you would deepen our unity because you deepen in us an awareness that we have one Lord, one truth, and one purpose. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.